0: If you have a copy of God's Word nearby, our text for this morning is Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. This story is, I think, one of the most incredible in the Gospels. It's a story that all three of the Synoptic Gospels record, both Matthew, Mark, and Luke, They all add their own distinctive flavor to the story, but they all tell it. Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Let's read and then we'll pray and ask for God's help to understand his word. Let's, Let's read together. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat... And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. And everyone marveled. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's good word. Let's pray and ask for his blessing on it. Lord Jesus, we are not skilled to understand Scripture that the Holy Spirit himself penned. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would Now, aid us as we contemplate your word. We pray that you would enlighten our minds. We pray that you would guide us into the truth. We pray, Lord Jesus, that this word about you would strengthen us where we need strengthening, would convict us where we need convicting, would comfort us where we need comforting. So we pray that you would meet us, and we thank you for the promise that you will. We pray these things, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. C.S. Lewis, in one of my favorite books by him, Mere Christianity, there's a chapter called The Invasion. And in it, C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, quote, enemy occupied territory. That is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. Christianity is the story about how the rightful king has landed. That's what our our passage is about this morning. It's about the rightful king landing in enemy-occupied territory. Um, if you look back at the at the text um, immediately before our text in, in, uh, in chapter 4, you'll see that Jesus has just been in a boat. He got in a boat with his disciples. A storm overtook them. And Jesus uh, looks at the storm and tells it to be quiet. Like you would talk to a naughty puppy at home. He tells it, Shut up. And immediately you could have heard a pin drop. And the disciples are, are scared. <laughs> um, and so Jesus has just, uh, has just shown that he is the king over nature. Um, that's in Mark 4. The very next um, section in Mark chapter 5, Jesus is going to show us that he is the king with authority over the powers of darkness. Um, and I think that if, if we had to say in one sentence what this story is about in Mark 5, I think we could say this, that Jesus is the king who deserves our worship, adoration, and obedience because of his authority and power and defeat over his enemies and also because of his mercy and love towards his people. We're going to unpack this uh, this narrative in Mark 5, by asking the question, "What happens when the when the rightful king comes ashore? When the king lands in enemy-occupied territory, what happens?" Um, I'm going to say three things, and the first is confrontation. Confrontation. This is our first point. Mark tells us that as soon as Jesus's feet hits the dry land, this man comes running down the slopes to meet him. And the description of this man is like a modern-day horror movie. And we're, we're going to get to the description of this man our second point. Um, but notice what this man has to say, what the first things are out of his lips. He says, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? notice that he's answering the disciples' question from back in in chapter 4 verse 31 the disciples you remember are picking up their dentures off of the bottom of the boat because jesus has just told a storm to shut up and they're looking at him saying they're looking at each other rather saying who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him and in the very next narrative we have this demon possessed man running down the hills answering their question jesus son of the most high god he identifies them where even when the when jesus own disciples were too dense to see um, skip down to verse 9 verse 9 jesus asks him what what his name is and the man replies my name is legion for what for we are many that word legion is not just a generic way to describe some numberless um quantity it, it's not like we would say a legion of of uh, of fish in the lake or or whatever that that word legion has a specific quantity to it um Back in that day, if you had heard the word legion, you would have thought Roman army. Because in the Roman army, a legion was a unit of soldiers consisting of 6,000 soldiers. 6,000 was a a legion. And even this word could even mean um, a unit of 6,000 soldiers plus... 6,000 more auxiliary or, or, or kind of substitute soldiers. So in some cases, this word is, is big enough to describe an army of 12,000 soldiers. Normally it means 6,000, but we're talking, we're talking big here. And so we immediately see that this is not just a, a roving band of of teenage punk demons out looking for some fun on a Friday night. This is an army. This is an an enormous detachment of evil spirits that have occupied uh, this man, that has occupied this hillside because as you'll see, nobody came close this is an army. Um, there is a fascinating scene back in the Old Testament in second Kings chapter 6 when the Syrian army is surrounding the city where the prophet Elisha is. and Elisha has a servant. the servant walks out in the morning and he's, he's wiping his eyes and and he looks out and he sees the city surrounded by This this army of Syrians and he runs back in and and he's and and he tells Elisha, what are we going to do? We're surrounded. Elisha basically says to him, you need better vision. You need to see things more properly. And so he prays to God and says, God, open up my servant's eyes and God opens up the servant's eyes and the servant looks out. And in the mountains surrounding the city, he sees it covered with chariots of fire, right? And I wonder what would happen. Let your imagination run. That's okay. Let your imagination run. If God were to let us have opened eyes to see what was really happening here in this um, in this story in Mark 5, what would we see? What would we see happening on this hillside? I think it would be something like this. You would see an army covering the slopes of this garrison hillside. You would see spears glinting. You would see swords drawn. You would see flags waving. You would see an army covering this hillside all the way from the tombs at the very top down to the slope, down to the sea at the bottom. You would see 2,000 pigs somewhere nearby grazing, but this army is so big it makes makes 2,000 pigs look small. You would see a conquering encampment of of the host of darkness here on the on the slopes but you would also you would see one more thing you would see that army face to face with one individual one lone solitary man facing them down and you would see this demonic army down on its knees down on its knees trembling and begging for mercy. You see that in verse 7. The legion says, I adjure you by God. How ironic. Do not torment me. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record, um, they all use that word for torment. Don't torment me. That That is this army's one plea when they're standing before Jesus Christ, the King. Now, you see, demons have pretty good theology, don't they? Demons could pass a lot of seminary exams. Demons could pass presbytery exams. They have better theology than we give them credit for. They're monotheistic. They believe there's one God. They're Trinitarian. They're standing in front of a man, Jesus Christ, and they say, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? They identify Jesus as God himself. Um, But they also know this. They know that there is a judgment day coming when God will punish evil. Um, They know that their time is short, that there's a day that's coming when they are going to receive the brunt of God's unmitigated wrath. They know that because of their rebellion. And get this, when they see King Jesus land on the shore that day, it's as if they think it's the end of time. They think that Revelation 20 has dawned upon them. Listen to this, to this scene from Revelation 20. It's the end of human history when God will finally, finally, for the rest of eternity, deal with Satan and with the rest of his enemies. And it says... and And they, that is Satan and his army, marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they were, same word, tormented day and night forever and ever. They think the day has come because they see King Jesus getting out of the boat on their shore. Fascinating. Um, So that's the scene of confrontation here. A army, a conquering army of demons quaking before one individual. Jesus Christ the King... um, that's the scene of confrontation. Now, before I go into something else, I, I want to answer the the issue of the pigs here. What do you do with the fact that Jesus just eliminated two thousand pigs? What do we do with the fact that Jesus probably just uh, put a big dent in somebody's livelihood? <laughs> that was somebody's herd of pigs feeding there on the hillside. Um, there, there were scads of commentators, not very good commentators, but commentators all the same, who, who read this account and they get their underwear in a wad because 2,000 pigs just just died. And they don't know what to do. There, were, there are many, um, many secular writers that, that come to stories like this in the Bible and say, see, Christianity cannot be true. How could Jesus be good? and send 2,000 pigs over the cliff. How do you answer that? Well, number one, that's not the the main point of the text. If if Matthew, Mark, or Luke wanted to answer the question, if they thought there was a moral injustice here, they would have dealt with it. Um, So the text doesn't really see it as a problem. It's not really the emphasis. And get this, the people involved in this story didn't see it as a problem either you notice that the, um, the pig herders and the, and the rest of the people in the town, when they come back and they're begging Jesus to leave, they were offended at Jesus and they were scared. They were scared, not because Jesus had just sent 2,000 pigs over the cliff, but because of the man sitting there that's clothed and in his right mind. That is the object of their fear, not the pigs uh, sending, uh, being sent over the cliff. But there's also one more thing. Try to put yourself there on that day and hear and see what it would have sounded like. To see, to hear, and to see two thousand pigs running like mad um, over a cliff and, and drowning in the waters below. Try to hear the noise. How chaotic! that would have sounded try to see that and then imagine okay all of that all of that destruction and chaos was all bottled up in that one single human individual that's what jesus was showing here that all of that destruction was all bottled up inside this one human being's mind um now we can say some more but uh, but we but we have to move on that's that's the pigs. Now, I want to make two applications from this first point. The first is this. In Mark chapter 4, when Jesus calms the storm, the disciples react in great fear. That's the word that's um, the terminology there that, that's used in Mark 4. They are filled with great fear. In Mark 5, when Jesus casts the legion out, the townspeople react the same way. They are filled with great fear and they beg Jesus to run away. And so, and so we can say this. You can either run away from Jesus in fear or you can run to Jesus in fear and awe and love. But no one stands there neutral. You don't have the option not to take sides when the king lands on the shore. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him or call him a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But you must make your choice. You cannot stay neutral when the king comes. Secondly is this. I have a daughter named Margaret. She's three years old. And for some reason, there are, there are, are men in our nursery that just scare the daylights out of her. That are kind of big, intimidating, you know, have beards. And when Margaret sees them, if she's by herself and she runs into these certain individuals in the hallway, she will run and hide. She can't take it. But, and I didn't teach her this, if I'm walking down the hallway with my three year old daughter and, and this certain individual meets us in the hallway, she won't even blink. If I'm standing right beside her, she will look them in the eye. I didn't teach her this. And she will point back up at me and keep walking and say, that's my daddy, that's my daddy, and keep walking. Because when I'm there next to her, I, my presence puts steel in her, back, in her backbone. It, it, it puts steel in her nerves when, I, when she knows that I'm right there next to her. And brothers and sisters, to have the king, this King Jesus, who, just, who by himself makes a conquering army of demons quake in fear and beg to get away from him. To have that kind of king not only on the throne, but next to you and in you should put steel in your nerves when you have to face things that you know you're not capable of handling by yourself. To have this King Jesus walking beside you through life, through your trials, through your temptations, you know you're able to look at things That otherwise would scare you to death. You're able to look at them in the eye and point to Jesus and say, he's on my side. He loves me. I'm his. And I don't know how to face this, but he does. And he's going to take care of me. That will put steel in God's people's nerves to have this king beside you that's my first point is confrontation now secondly what happens when the king comes to shore is conversion conversion we've we've thought about the legion of demons now let's think about this man the way that this man is described this is incredible follow me beginning in verse 3 Mark tells us that he lived among the tombs that that word can either mean he lived In them or among them. In other words, his living room had dead people in them. He lived with dead people. He was as unclean as unclean can possibly be. Verses 3 and 4 says no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains. Does that remind you of somebody? Sounds just like Samson, doesn't it? Samson um, was one of the great heroes of the Old Testament, filled with God's Holy Spirit to do good, to, to work salvation for God's people. And here we see almost kind of an anti-Samson. He's filled with an army of demons to, to wreak havoc and to, and to wreak destruction. Um, and our minds get, you know, we we I kind of latch on to that description of him being able to break chains and things. But this hit me last week. Why was he tied up with chains? Why was this man bound with shackles and chains in the first place? <laughs> Obviously, there were people in the town nearby, the town that he was from, that didn't know what else to do with him. And so somehow they were able to come to him, tie him up, and what do you think they did? They probably didn't tie him up to leave him in their guest bedroom or in their living room. They probably left, they probably left him to die. They didn't know what else to do with him. He was a menace, and it doesn't say this anywhere in the text, but it's, it's, I think it's logical to think this man was left to die on several occasions, but the demons were not through with him. And so he would break the chains and and get loose. Verse five: Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. This is not in the text either. But um, what if the times that this man was cutting himself with stones were the times when this man had was when when he was in his right mind? Because, you know, we, we get the, the impression that this demon possession would kind of come in waves. It would hit him. Um, it would hit him hard, and then it would kind of recess a little bit. Hit him hard, recess. What if the times when, he was, when the townspeople could hear him crying out and watch him cutting himself, what if he was trying to end it because he, could, because he didn't want to do this anymore? He's done with life, and he just wants to, he wants to die. Um, I think that's a very valid option. You know, also these demons were, were hurting him. He was destructive to other people and to himself. Um, now get this, in, when Luke records this story in Luke uh, chapter 8, he gives us two, two other little small details. He tells us that he's from the city. This man was once a normal, functional member of society. Who knows, he could have been the bread maker or the blacksmith or the whatever. But he was once, he lived in the city. Who knows, he could have had a family, children. But he was from the city. And then Luke also tells us that for a long time he had worn no clothes and had not lived in a house but among the tombs. So he ran around naked. There is no greater mark of shame than to be seen naked. And this man lived in a tomb, naked. You cannot get lower than that. Um, So to kind of combine all of these descriptions uh, that we have, we can say that this man was a prisoner of the devil, helpless, hopeless, dangerous, friendless, abandoned, miserable, naked, shamed, desperate, unwanted, unclean, unloved, Alone, despised, hated, and he wants to die. But he's one more thing, and this is the most incredible part of the story. He is the sole object of the love of Jesus Christ. Jesus loved this man enough to get in a boat and go rescue his life. Because you notice... At the end of the story, Jesus gets back in a boat and leaves. This was a, a one-day trip for Jesus. Somehow, in a way this text doesn't say, Jesus saw this man, knew about him, and loved him enough to go rescue him. We learn something amazing here about the difference between the way that God loves and the way that we as human beings, love. An illustration. I love cheesecake. I love cheesecake because I think it deserves to be loved, right? Cheesecake has real merit. Um, If I love cheesecake, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm a loving person. I'm just responding to something that I see in cheesecake. Um, I think it's wonderful. All the merit is in cheesecake. There's no merit in me for loving cheesecake. The same with the sport of basketball or whatever, you know, pick something that you love. You probably love it because you see real worth and merit located in whatever that is, in your object of love. I don't love cooked spinach because I don't think cooked spinach has any merit. And it does not make me a hateful person To not love something that I don't think is worth loving. Like Cook's Pinch. Um, But notice that the love of Jesus Christ here that's displayed in Mark 5 and throughout the rest of the Bible is exactly the opposite. Jesus sees a man who is completely unlovable. He has no shred of merit in him. Nothing that deserves to be loved. And Jesus says... I love that guy. How is that possible? It's because all the merit of love is located in Jesus himself. That's how Jesus can love people and things that are intrinsically unlovable. That's what John means in in 1 John 4 when he wrote that God is love. Um. Jesus Christ sets his love on this man because of who Jesus is and not because of something located in that man. So with that in mind, I want to ask you two questions. These two questions are going to address two different types of folks that are here this morning. Um, First question. Do you think... That if Jesus loves you, if you claim that Jesus loves you, do you think that you were any more desirable or lovable than this man was? Do you think that, G- that God saw you and loved you then and still loves you today because he sees some kind of merit located in you? Because you're doing good. And friends, if you answer yes, that is not the gospel. God does not love people because they're good. And he doesn't keep loving them because they get better. God does not love you because you're good. That is hard to believe. But that is the gospel that God sees people like I hope you see yourself as dirty, twisted, and unlovable, and he says, I want them. I love them, and I'm going to make them like me. A second question. Do you think that because of, because of who you are, because of something that you did 20 years ago or something that you did last night, that because of some addiction or some, or, or whatever in you, do you think that you could possibly be less lovable or desirable to Jesus than this man was? Because I don't think so. Um,. If Jesus went out of his way to rescue a filthy, unlovable wretch in order to turn him back into a human being again, if Jesus went out of his way for someone like that that wasn't even looking for him, then why would he turn you away if you come to him asking for mercy? it it is probably the story of more people than you think in this room and people that you know that there is just something about there's we say there's something about me there's something that I did or something that I'm doing or something that I just can't do and God can't love me for that the most God can do is tolerate me and brothers and sisters that thank God is not the gospel Jesus sees unlovable people and He loves them because He is love. Um, So do you think that He would turn away a wretch like you or like me if we came to Him begging for mercy? He won't. Um, You see how Jesus leaves this man. um, The description is is in verse uh, 15. It says that he's clothed, seated, and in his right mind. Jesus made this man a human being again. And it's what he does um, with the wretches that he loves. Um, Now thirdly, lastly, and more quickly, I promise, our third point is commission. So we've seen... um, um, So thirdly is commission. Notice that there are three instances of people begging for Jesus. People begging Jesus for something in this account. The demons beg Jesus not to torment them. Jesus answers their prayer. The people beg Jesus to leave their shores. Jesus answers their prayer. And then when Jesus is getting back in his boat, this man, this new disciple, who should have been the 13th apostle, I mean... He's ready to follow Jesus to the death. And he, he says, Jesus, can I come with you? Jesus says, no. That is so surprising that Jesus doesn't answer this man's prayer. Why does he do that? Well, I want you to flip in your Bibles just one page over to Mark chapter 6. You've got to see this. Mark, Mark chapter 6, verse 53. This is a little bit later on, and Mark writes, "When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. That's the, that's another name for um, for the garrisons where this action took place, and moored to the shore. So they they land at the same shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him, and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was, and went." And wherever he came in villages, cities, and countrysides, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. The same people that banded together and linked arms and said, Jesus, we do not want you here. We are scared of you. Please leave. Jesus answers their prayers. One chapter later, Jesus lands on the same shore, and they are begging Jesus to come to him. They're bringing out sick people. They're bringing out demon-possessed people. They are begging Jesus to be there with them. Why the change of heart? It was because of this man. Jesus commissioned a disciple to bring the gospel to the people that didn't want anything to, to do with him. And... And what a dramatic change of heart. Um, I just want to close by saying this. It may be your testimony that if you're here this morning, it's only because God did not give up on you. It's only because even when you would have loved to run away from God, or from Jesus, that God did not let you go. But He puts He put some person in your life. He put something in your life and just kept hounding you. He did not let you go, just like He did with these people. What mercy. There's a, there's a hymn in our hymnals called, Oh, Love That Will Not Let Me Go. And brothers and sisters, I bet that's your testimony. And we can be encouraged because I bet that there are people that you love (laughs) that the only thing that you can pray for them is that God will not let them go. Um, And so you see (laughs) such, you have evidence to hold on, evidence to keep praying. Because here is a king who does not let people go. He wanted them, and so he sent them a missionary. What mercy. They didn't deserve that. What love. So we see that when King Jesus lands on the shore of enemy territory, he confronts, he converts, and then he commissions. Jesus is a king with a with authority and with love and mercy. And brothers and sisters, I ask you, is he your king this morning? (laughs) Is he yours? Is he walking beside you? And do you know that he is everything that the gospels say he is? I hope so. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would break our hearts of stone because we are so easily we we so easily become sleepy and tired to the gospel. We so easily get calloused to things that maybe once made our hearts beat, but so I pray that you would make our hearts beat again. Lord Jesus, if we have become Um, dangerously callous to you. I pray that seeing you as you display yourself here in Mark 5 as a king with authority, but also a king with tender love and persistent mercy, I pray that that would break our hearts. Let us run to you and not away from you. We pray that you would help us to love you and to trust you because of who you are, Lord Jesus. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.